This podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. If you're into classic 90s action movies, where the good guys infiltrate a subculture to catch the bad guys, then you probably know the cult favorite, Point Break. Keanu Reeves plays Johnny, a rookie FBI agent who goes undercover inside the West Coast surfing scene to capture a gang of violent armed bank robbers. This is where he meets his nemesis, Bodie, a charismatic surfer played by the late Patrick Swayze. Bodie leads the gang, and teaches Johnny about the exhilarating adrenaline rush of chasing not only the ultimate wave, but the ultimate high, which he says can be found by, of all things, robbing banks. As the young FBI agent continues to gather intelligence about how the gang operates, he becomes conflicted as a genuine friendship with Bodhi develops. He also discovers a kind of spiritual awakening found within the world of extreme sports. This inner turmoil threatens to compromise his undercover assignment, resulting in an action-packed and poetic finale. The absurd concept of a gang of surfers committing violent robberies worked and made Point Break a hit at the box office. But what most people don't know is that the Hollywood blockbuster is not entirely a work of pure fiction. You see, the character of Bodhi is actually based on real-life surfing champion Jack Murphy. 25 years before Point Break hit the big screen, he orchestrated one of the largest robberies in U.S. history. My name is Eric Crosby. Welcome to True. Jack Ronald Murphy was born on May 26, 1937, in Oceanside, California. Jack was the only child to his parents, Jack Sr. and Ruth. While still a child, the family moved to New Mexico in the 1940s, before eventually returning to California. Back at the ocean, Jack took up surfing and seemed to be a natural. A lot of things seemed to come easily to the young man, including athletics He was a talented artist, writer, and musician. His instrument of choice was the violin, and, like most things, he was quite gifted. By the time Jack was in his final year of high school, the family had relocated again, this time across the country to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. No longer able to pursue his passion for surfing, the teenager took up tennis, quickly earning a scholarship to the University of Pittsburgh. He had also continued playing the violin, and was reportedly performing with the Pittsburgh Symphony Orchestra by the time he was 18. But it seems the academic life was not for Jack. In 1955, while still in his first year of college, he dropped out and headed straight for the beach. He hitchhiked to Miami, Florida, and quickly found work giving swimming and tennis lessons at some of the city's luxury hotels. Always the showman, Jack also performed in aquatic shows, executing complicated and dangerous high-diving maneuvers. 
1957, Jack met Dick Catry, who worked as a towel boy at a Miami pool. He taught the young man how to surf and dive, and soon the pair were the main attraction at hotel aquatic shows. The same year, 20-year-old Jack married his first wife, and the couple went on to have two sons. In 1958, Jack Murphy and Dick Catry decided to take a surfing road trip through Florida. They ended up about three hours north of Miami in a town called Indy Atlantic, where the pair stayed for a month. The following year, the surfing duo were said to be the very first people to conquer the waves at Florida's renowned Sebastian Inlet. The local attention was great, but the men wanted to bring the sport of surfing to the masses. To do that, they knew it would take more than just performing fancy moves in the water. So, in 1960, Jack opened Murph's Surf Shop, which, according to reports, may have been the first shop of its kind on the East Coast. The easy-flowing nickname stuck, and Jack would be affectionately known as Murph the Surf from that point on. In 1962, as Jack's marriage was failing, his surfing career was finally taking off. The same year, he won the Daytona Beach Surfing Championship, followed by another longboard title a year later. He opened a shop in Cocoa Beach, making custom surfboards by day and partying by night. The now 26-year-old remarried in 1963, but this relationship too quickly dissolved. Jack was the life of the party, and by now had developed a solid network in and out of the surfing community. It was made up of all types of colorful, yet shady characters, who typically operated on the wrong side of the law. It wasn't entirely surprising, given the popular tourist destinations where Jack lived and worked attracted a wealthy clientele. Local petty criminals used boats to rob extravagant waterfront properties, and occasionally, Jack would get involved. On one occasion alone, he netted around $15,000. Not bad for an hour of his time, and more importantly, like surfing the waves, it was a rush. That's where things began to escalate. Not long after moving back to Miami, Jack met wealthy and charismatic Alan Kuhn. Like Jack, Alan worked as a diving and swimming instructor, and he too had developed a taste for the criminal lifestyle. He and Jack began their illicit partnership by selling stolen artwork on the black market for some easy cash. Alan owned a speedboat, and they often used it to carry out burglaries on Florida homes of the rich and, at least on one occasion, the famous. Just after midnight on January 4, 1964, the men proved that even Hollywood stars were fair game when they broke into the Florida apartment of actress Ava Gabor. Wearing masks, Jack and Alan pistol-whipped the popular TV, film, and Broadway actress before making off with her $25,000 diamond ring. They left her and her husband bound and gagged. With the success of their recent efforts, it wasn't long before the criminal duo decided to expand their operation. So they recruited Connecticut-born house painter 
and ex-Navy man, Roger Clark. In October 1964, 27-year-old Jack, 26-year-old Alan, and 29-year-old Roger took a road trip to New York City. They rented the penthouse at the Cambridge House Hotel on the Upper West Side and lived the high life. Half their time was filled with drug and alcohol-fueled parties, and the other half with stealing from hotel rooms and affluent bar patrons in the Midtown area. One night, during a heavy drinking session, the group came up with the idea of stealing something other than money or artwork. They now wanted jewels. It just so happened that the Hall of Gems, located on the fourth floor of the American Museum of Natural History, was right down the street from their hotel. During a reconnaissance visit, the trio noticed that the 19 windows on the museum's fourth floor were always left open for ventilation purposes. As they looked at what was on exhibit, their jaws dropped. In the middle of the Hall of Gems were four cases safeguarding four of the world's most valuable jewels. One contained the 563-carat Star of India, a sapphire the size of a golf ball. Another held a rare gemstone called the Eagle Diamond. The other two showcased the 104-carat DeLong Star Ruby and the 116-carat Midnight Star, one of the world's largest black sapphires. During the visit, the men were pleased to notice that at least on one display, the Star of India, the batteries for the trip alarm were totally corroded. On the night of October 29, 1964, long after the museum had closed for the day, the men arrived in Allen's Cadillac. Equipped with a walkie-talkie, Roger would wait in the car to keep a lookout while Jack and Alan made their way inside. They kept things light, bringing only a rope, a bag, and a few tools. In case they ran into any trouble, one of them carried a revolver. As Roger waited in the car, Alan and Jack made their way over the museum's fence. They climbed up a fire escape to the fifth floor landing. As he inched his way along the building's exterior, Jack surprised a flock of pigeons, nearly causing him to fall. They gained access to an office and then made their way to the Hall of Gems on the fourth floor. The operation was by no means a smash and grab, despite their best efforts. In fact, Jack Murphy and Alan Kuhn were inside the museum for hours the rubber mallet they brought to break into the display cases was no match for the thickness of the glass. So, they went to their backup plan. Using a glass cutter, they carved a circle into the cases and then used a suction cup to pull the pieces out. The holes were covered with duct tape to minimize the noise of glass breaking, but they knew it would still be a loud process. Luckily for them, the museum was directly under a flight path, so they coordinated the glass breaking with the sound of planes flying overhead. Their luck continued. As it turned out, none of the alarms in the display cases went off. What they didn't know is that the wires had been disconnected for years. In fact, 
Funding for the museum's security was so tight that only eight guards were covering the 18-building complex. This meant that on a regular basis, the Hall of Gems was left unmonitored throughout the night. Once the protective cases were opened, Jack and Alan placed 24 precious gems into the bag and exited the same way they came in. When they made it outside, they were shocked to see police officers everywhere. To their immense relief, it was just a shift change and nothing to do with them. Calm and collected, Jack walked along the sidewalk past the police, still carrying the rope and the bag containing millions of dollars worth of gems. After hailing a cab, he disappeared into the New York City traffic, eventually making his way back to the hotel to celebrate with his accomplices. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. When the story broke the next day, it became known as the Jewel Heist of the Century. The incident was an embarrassment for the museum, and it faced even further humiliation. Back in 1964, the jewels, some of which were also set in bracelets, brooches, and rings, were estimated to be worth around $400,000. That's around $3.5 million in today's value. Even though the museum claimed the items were priceless, they could not even make an insurance claim for the 400000 given they hadn't even bothered to properly safeguard one of their most prized exhibits. As for the thieves, there was no time to waste. As part of the plan, Alan had charmed a 19-year-old woman named Janet at the hotel where the men were staying. He convinced her to fly back to Miami with him, along with Jack. Unknown to Janet, they had stuffed the stolen jewels into her bag. Roger stayed behind at the hotel in Manhattan, while Jack, Alan, and Janet all boarded a plane to Miami using fake names. Roger would make his way down in a day or two. At least, that was the plan. While Jack, Alan, and Janet were on their way to Miami, a hotel employee had become suspicious of the guests' lavish partying in the penthouse suite and contacted authorities. When the NYPD arrived, they found the penthouse empty. They did, however, find a lot of incriminating evidence. They had left the tools used in the robbery lying around the room. There was a floor plan of the museum, books about precious stones, and the shoes they had worn during the burglary. The soles of the shoes were still embedded with shards of glass from the display cases. Roger was visiting his family in Connecticut overnight, completely unaware that the hotel suite was being searched. Unfortunately for him, police were still there when he got back and walked into the room. 
he was promptly arrested by a detective who was just as surprised to see him. Meanwhile, Janet was growing concerned after her first day in Miami with Jack and Alan, who she had only met a short time earlier. She made contact with friends in New York and told them she didn't feel safe and was being held against her will. Her friends called the police and provided the location of the apartment in Florida. The following day, officers in Miami broke through the front door and arrested Jack and Allen. It had taken authorities only 48 hours to crack the case and apprehend the jewel thieves. All three men were charged with first-degree burglary and possession of burglary tools. After a few days in jail, the men were released on bail. But just eight weeks later, in January 1965, things went from bad to worse. At least for Alan and Jack. The pair were identified as the men who had attacked and robbed Ava Gabor 12 months earlier. So then this other guy pointed this gun at me, and I, I, with my terrible temper, went after him. I swacked him, but I didn't hurt him. And then he hit me, this ungentlemanly bum. I didn't bite him. I couldn't have a chance to bite him. I just did like that. Then he hit me with the side of the gun here, and I got a nice shiner here. They were both charged with robbery and assault. After swiftly being taken back into custody, their previous bail amount was raised to $150,000. Hoping for some leniency, Allen offered to return the stolen gems. The first stop was to a storage locker at the Northeast Miami Trailways bus terminal. When detectives opened the locker, they found two pouches. But if investigators were hopeful that all the stolen items were there, they were about to be disappointed. Out of the 24 gems taken that night, only nine were recovered. Thankfully, it did include a couple of the main ones. The Star of India and the Midnight Star were among the rare stones returned. There were five emeralds and a couple of smaller gems as well, but the DeLong Star Ruby and the Eagle Diamond were still missing. Mr. Clark, these are serious charges which have been lodged against you. Are you very worried about the outcome? Well, it, it is very serious, but uh, we aren't guilty, so I really don't feel in, in this land, with the courts we have here, that we have anything to worry about. In April 1965, they were all sentenced to three years at Rikers Island. It wasn't all bad news, though. Fortunately for Jack and Alan, Ava Gabor chose not to testify, and the case was dropped. Almost a year after the robbery, in September 1965, the DeLong Star Ruby finally surfaced. A $25,000 ransom was paid by a wealthy and prominent insurance mogul, and the stone was left in a phone booth in Palm Beach, Florida. An associate of Allen and Jack's named Duncan Pearson was eventually found guilty of concealing the stone. Jack, Allen, and Roger ended up doing just under two years of their three-year sentences. In 1967, Jack remarried. It was the perfect opportunity for him to get back on the right track. 
But later that year, things took a very dark turn. In November 1967, 24-year-old Terry Ray Frank and 21-year-old Annalie Maria Mann were on the run. The young women were both former secretaries of an L.A.-based brokerage firm. But when they stole almost $500,000 in securities from the company, around $4 million today, they took off. The women hopped on a bus and headed across the country to the Florida village of Bell Harbor. They checked into a hotel and shortly after happened to make the acquaintance of Jack and Alan. The introduction worked out well, because when the women could no longer afford their hotel, they moved in with Jack. It depends on who you talk to, but a few weeks later, according to Jack, he took Terry and Annalie out on a midnight boat ride, along with two other men, one named Jack Griffith and the other nicknamed Rusty. Heading up South Florida's intercoastal waterway, their destination was the city of Hollywood. Jack claimed they had planned to discuss how to dispose of the money the young women had stolen. It was alleged that when the conversation soured, one of the young women threatened to go to the FBI if she didn't get a larger share. It was at this point that both young women were bludgeoned, shot, and stabbed to death. Their bodies were weighted down with concrete blocks and thrown overboard. It wasn't long before Terry and Annalie's bodies were found. The crime became known as the Whiskey Creek Murders, named after the swampy waterway near Fort Lauderdale, where the bodies were discarded. While investigators were on the hunt for the killers, Jack continued to break the law. He was the lookout and getaway driver when he and several other men attempted to rob Miami Beach socialite Olive Wofford. Police arrived midway through the robbery, and a shootout ensued. Jack attempted to flee, diving through a glass door, but was caught and arrested. By 1969, police had been able to link Jack Murphy and Jack Griffith to the Whiskey Creek murders. Charged with the first-degree murder of Terry Frank, Murphy and Griffith faced court in Fort Lauderdale. They blamed each other for the murders, and Jack Murphy later accused the mysterious Rusty, who was never identified. In fact, a witness at the trial said he only saw four people on the boat, the two women, Murphy and Griffith. Jack Murphy initially pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity, but the judge eventually ruled that he was fit to stand trial. The state alleged that Jack Murphy was a co-conspirator with the young women from the very start. They argued that Jack had partnered with the secretaries to steal the securities before Terry and Annalie had even left California. They also suggested that he intentionally harbored the fugitives. In March 1969, Jack was convicted of Terry's murder and sentenced to life in prison with hard labor. Jack Griffith was convicted of second-degree murder and was sentenced to 45 years in prison. The murder of Annalie Mann never went to trial. The following year, 1970, Jack was convicted for his role in the robbery of Olive Wofford and received an additional life sentence, plus 20 years. Jack Murphy was facing a very long time in jail. 
However, his charisma and charm ensured that he was not forgotten. The press often retold the entertaining tale of his jewel heist, conveniently omitting the murders. And in 1975, his story was made into a movie starring Robert Conrad, Burt Young, and Don Stroud. The Place, New York's Museum of Natural History. The year, 1964. You are about to witness the most spectacular jewel heist in the annals of crime. At the beginning of his incarceration, Jack put his criminal skills to use by running a gambling ring and smuggling drugs. But in 1974, he received a visit, which inspired a turnaround. Ex-NFL players Roger Staubach and Bill Glass visited Florida State Prison to speak to inmates about how their lives could be changed by turning towards God. Their words provoked a significant shift in Jack's way of thinking, and he made the decision to embrace religion. Of course, prison administrators were skeptical of this sudden change, assuming it was simply a tactic to manipulate the parole board. But Jack took on mentorship and pastoral leadership roles, becoming someone both inmates and officials begrudgingly respected. Jack Murphy lost an appeal to the Supreme Court in 1975, but he didn't let this dampen his spirits. He was hopeful that one day, he'd be a free man again. However, his earliest parole date was 30 years away. Undeterred, he continued his faith-based peer support work, and in November 1986, the parole board released Jack based on good behavior. But he would be on parole for life, and was prohibited from returning to the scenes of his Florida crimes. Jack wasted no time traveling all over the country as part of his prison ministry, visiting every correctional facility he could. He now worked for Bill Glass in the same program which had changed his life over 10 years before. Jack remained intensely committed to improving the lives of inmates everywhere by using his own personal story as an example of how redemption is possible. Because of his commitment to the prison ministry, in 2000, the Florida Parole Board terminated his lifetime parole. On September 12th, 2020, Jack Murphy died of heart and organ failure at the age of 83. His life had four very distinct phases. Glamorous jewel thief, convicted murderer, reformed evangelist. And it's easy to forget where it all started. Professional surfer. In 1996, Jack and his old pal Dick Catry were inducted into the East Coast Surfing Hall of Fame. Jack, Murph the Surf Murphy, spent his life just like he surfed, always chasing that next big wave. Quite unsure if 
is a production of Imperative Entertainment. This episode of True was researched and written by Gemma Harris. The executive producer is Jason Hoke of Imperative Entertainment. The cover art and design were created by Jenna Sullivan. True was created and is produced by me. Have any comments or questions? Email us at podcasts at imperativeentertainment.com. As always, a huge thanks for listening and for your amazing reviews and ratings. I'll be back next week with another episode. Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.